The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Have you ever noticed how addicted human beings are to story? We are addicted to story. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. How many of you have ever um, been lost streaming Netflix before? Got to watch another one. Got to watch another one. What is that? This story, right? Did you know worldwide, supposedly, human beings spend about $62 billion a year watching movies? Can that be? I got to fact check that. I got to fact check this, too. Americans spend $10 million a year on romance novels. That's amazing. Story, right? We haven't even gotten into books, 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 books. Uh, story. We're addicted to story. And you know, it's been happening for all of recorded history. What do we have from the Babylonians and the everybody else? It's their stories. It's their myth. What they believe how many of you have heard things like this? Well, everything happens for a reason. I've heard people who don't believe anything officially say that. What is, what is that? Everything happens for a reason? What, what, is, what is that? That's a story. It's going somewhere on purpose. Don't think when I say story, I mean um, fable. Or how about this one? Have you heard this one? Um, Let's see, we say everything happens for a reason. We say, um, oh, well, it was meant to be. You heard that one? Meant? Meant by whom? To be what? What is that? Story? Why do you think this is? Human beings are addicted to stories. Why is this? I think it's because story gives meaning to life. It gives meaning to life. It gives a reason for living. There's a purpose Think about it. In a story, you have hard times, tension, failure. You got any of that in your life? Maybe a hero, a villain, a sacrifice, hopefully. What do we want? At least for our own stories. A happy ending. We are story people because it, makes, it gives meaning. Without, without story, we're hopeless. Uh, have you ever had that sense, that wonder, maybe one hard time in your life, one night, where you think there might not be any point to life. You ever felt that land on you? Or maybe when you're suffering, you might think, there's no point to this suffering. I think that's maybe the worst. There's no point to this suffering. It seems meaningless. If, and that's, that's where you feel despair. It's hopeless. Because there's no real story to it. Bertrand Russell is a famous atheist thinker. And uh, his story is that there's no story, right? Accident, whoops, live, die, bye. Um, and he actually says this. That's what he means by these truths, the materialist worldview. He says, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So you got to base your life on this. It's reality, he's saying. There's no God. It's all just material. But do you remember what he called it? The firm foundation of what? Unyielding despair. There's no story. There's no hope. There's no meaning. 
We're lost. That's why we're story people. You know, that reminds me that in many ways, this world is a competition of stories. What are the Democrats telling you about life? A story. What are the Republicans telling you? A story. Every commercial's telling you a story. Um, Axe body spray is so stupid, but I love these commercials, right? Once upon, a po- once upon a time, there was a total loser, and he sprayed himself with Axe body spray. And all of the girls were suddenly into him, and he lived happily ever after. The end. I got to go get me some of that, right? <laughs> That's a story. It's a stupid story, but it's a story. What's every religion trying to be? It's a comprehensive story. Hey, this is what it's all about. This is where we came from. This is where we're going. This is how we get there. Every religion is a story. And you know what? You tell yourself stories as well. Have you ever been anxious? Okay. Anybody says no, I, I don't believe you. You ever been anxious? That's creative writing where you're the author. And you're constantly writing horror stories and tragedies. And they feel so real, don't they? That's a story. How about this? You ever felt self-righteous? That's a story as well. You invented a standard. You pretended that you accomplished it and others haven't. So that's what we call fiction, right? (laughs) Or have you ever caught yourself just being prideful in general? You've written a story and you're the hero, Or self-pity, you've written a story, you're the victim. When you're offended, you can't see why others don't understand that you're the hero of the story. It's all, we're we're making meaning, we're making reasons, we're making progression, we're going somewhere. There's purpose, there's meaning, we're stories. We're story people, we can't help it. It's almost as if we're made for it. So here's the big question. What is the real story? Is there a true story that makes sense of all the other stories? Is there a story that satisfies our needs for meaning, purpose, hope, love, that's true, that's real, that's bigger than just our imaginations? What would that be? So we're, we're, we've been, we're continuing our study through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And you see in verse one, he says, I wanna remind you so we know they already, they already know the true story. They've believed it, but like us, I suppose, they forget it. They get distracted. They get mm, tempted by, influenced by counterfeit stories of things. They live in different stories, different times of the day or parts of the week or different settings. Can you feel that one? You've got a different set of rules, set of meaning, set of purpose when you're with this group than when you're with that per- group. So Paul's going to remind them again, 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 of the most important part, the core of the true story that we must never forget. This is it right here. So I want to look at three major things. Number one, the true story. Number two, the effect it can have. And number three, how to respond to it. The true story, the effect it can have. And number three, how to respond to it. So first, let's look at the true story. Give you a couple aspects about this story. 
Number one, the story is a gospel story. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.1. I would remind you, brothers, brothers and sisters, of the what? Gospel. You and I, we hear that word, and I don't know what you think, but you can think gospel music or gospel truth or what are we talking about? Ancient world, gospel meant history-changing awesome news. So if your country's in a horrible war with another country, um, and somehow we won, and, and a, an announcer would come to all the cities and say, the gospel, I've got gospel for you. We won. The enemy's been defeated. You're not going to be refugees. You're not, we're not going to have everything pillaged and burned. We, we won the gospel. The, historically good news, and there would be parties, right? Yes, we won. A gospel story. A gospel story means, in part, it's really good. It also means, in part, it's news. So here's one thing about news. So you watch the news, you read a newspaper. What does it have to do with what you do in the news? I don't know about you, but when I read it, I'm not in there. It is what it is all by itself apart from me. It's announcing something to me, but it's not really about me. It influences me, you bet, but it's not what I've done. This gospel is news. It's news. Verses three to eight describe the gospel. And you'll see in there, there's no commands for you to do. It's all about something someone else has done. It's all about something someone else has done. So the first thing we see is there's a gospel. It's, the true story is a gospel story. It's news about what someone else has done. And it's really good news. The second thing about this story is that it's about a person. It's about a person. For I delivered to you, verse 3 Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that, what? What's the next word? Christ. Christ. Um, it's not Jesus' last name. It's a title. And what a title it is. If I had to sum it up, I guess I would call it promised king. But that word promised is so epic. It really is epic. Step back for a moment, I guess. Have you ever just noticed from your own observation how strangely beautiful and good this world is and amazingly horribly how terrible and ugly this world is simultaneously. You can see amazing things. Human beings have done amazing, beautiful, kind, brilliant things. And we just think, oh, it's incredible. And then, man, you turn the page and you just see Horrors that we don't, want to th we don't want to think about. It's too awful. How can this be? What, what is this? Is there a story that makes sense of this? This one word, Christ, has it all in it. A beautiful, holy, awesome God made everything by the word of his power. And the best part of what he made, human beings made in his image, made to know him, fellowship with him, reign, uh, Underneath his authority in this beautiful world that he's made. So beautiful. Do you see the beauty? Beautiful world. Beautiful people. And yet, human beings twisted that, rebelled against it, turned from it, corrupted it. Evil. But 
You read the story of the world in the, in the Old Testament. Right after that fall into sin, there's a promise. Somebody's going to come, and he's going to heal it. He's going to fix it. He's going to renew it. He's going to come. He's coming. You read the entire Old Testament covering hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Hey, this is why we need him, but he's going to come, and he's going to be like this, and this is what he's going to. And then Jesus the Christ comes, and every image, every hope, every dream, every promise, every prophecy, boom, fulfilled in, in him. He's the key to the story. He's the one who holds the story in his hands. He's the one who fixes the story. He's the Christ. And he's come. The one who made everything beautiful is going to come and renew what he's made. The story is a gospel story, and it's about Jesus. Yeah, I think it's true if you listen to other religions. Um, Muhammad, Muhammad, tell me the truth. What's he going to tell you? Is he going to say, I'm Allah, follow me? No, he would, he would rather die than say that. He would say, follow these rules and you'll get there. Or, or Buddha, what, what would Buddha say to you? Is he going to say, I am Nirvana, I'm the ultimate? No, he's going to say, follow, follow these rules. Um, any religious teacher, what are they going to say? Well, that's what they are. They're teachers. They're going to say, here's the path. Go, go and do this and you can reach God. Do you remember what Jesus says? I'm the way. I'm God. Come right here. The story is about him. He's the Christ. He's the good news. Look what he's done. I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, what? Died. Christ died. These, each of these words are so important. A lot of, uh, I guess, more liberal scholars or even, you know, Gandhi thought Jesus was pretty neat, sort of. He looked at what Jesus did on the cross and he called it, he died for, what would he say? Uh, maybe for love. Okay. Uh, and, and, then, and many would say Jesus died as an example. An example. An example of what? Wouldn't you think it was a little weird if I went up to you and said, I love you so much, I'm going to die on a cross for you? And you'd be like, could you not? Um, and then also, like, what would that actually do for you other than make you think I had mental problems? Um, why did Jesus die? Unless he was actually doing something on the cross, it's not an example worth anything. And this is so core and you've heard it before, especially in this room. We've heard it a million times. Well, let's, we remember this with me. Why did he die? Christ died what? For our sins. That word for means on behalf of. He died for someone else's sins. He's taking something he doesn't deserve in someone else's place. He's a substitute. He's a substitute. A sin. We, we've got all these church words, right? Sin, that's a church word. Do you remember what that means? Can you even, can you feel it anymore? Suppose there's this infinite, powerful, wise person who created everything. What is, what is that person like? What would it be like to be in that person's presence? Eternal, creates everything. The cell to the, to the stars. 
And suppose that he's holy, which is kind of like being horribly good. Horribly good. Does that sound strange to you, the, the combination of horribly good? How good are you? Like, I kind of have a casual hobby with good. I like good. But, man, I, I kind of allow, overlook a lot of non-good things, especially in my heart. What would it be like to be in the presence of someone all-powerful who's all good, with the perfect, eternal love for what is good? You know, if you love what is good, what, how do you feel towards what's evil? You hate it. And the more you love what is good, the more you hate what is evil. And if you have an infinite love for what is good, you have this infinite wrath for what is evil. Suppose this God make, made you, and he upholds every moment of your life, and he makes your cells work, and he's provided you with everything, and you're breathing, and your heart's beating, and your mind is working because this God has made you. And suppose you wanted to replace him. Suppose you wanted to substitute yourself in this place. Not, oh, you wouldn't go too far and say, oh, I'm the creator of the world. No. You just say, get out of my way. I don't need you anymore. I've got this. Or you'd, you'd twist what he's made and turn it against him, most of all yourself. That's kind of the feeling of what the Bible talks about sin. It's this horrid, insane rebellion against a holy God. And if God was this holy, amazing, horribly good God, how would, what would his response be to our rebellion against him, our love for evil? Wouldn't he be forced by the reality of his own character to bring justice? I mean, we've said, God, let us sin, and, and in our sin, we're almost saying, God, don't be God. God, don't be good. Ungod yourself, because I want to be in your place. Do you feel how ugly and arrogant this is and if and if he's going to be god he's going to bring justice on us now for this story to work don't you need god to be a god of justice don't you need that and everybody wants justice until until it comes for you <laughs> until it comes for me And then we read Christ in accordance with the scriptures, the promised king in accordance with the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. Where God did not bring justice upon us, he brought justice for us. We the ones who wanted to substitute ourselves for God, God has instead substituted himself for us. Christ died for our sins in our place. And talk about stories. Have you noticed the greatest stories are always, they always come together with some sort of innocent hero giving themselves up for others? Look for this. Next book you read, next story you watch, whether it's sci-fi, uh, whether it's fantasy, whether it's just drama, you watch. The, the best stories are resolved by the innocent person laying their, some, themselves down in some way for someone else. And this, this right here is the ultimate in the history of the world. That the innocent, holy Son of God who made everything would take on flesh and go to a cross in the place of those who've rebelled against him and hated him and take upon himself the wrath of God in our place. He died for our sins. 
And then think of the images we get out of this, right? He's ransomed us out of slavery. What was the price? His blood. He saved us out of debt. What was the price? He gave up himself. He reconciled us out of war with God and brought us to friendship. What was the price? Himself. He's justified us. We're declared innocent before God. What was the price? He gave up himself. We're adopted. He gave himself. He died for our sins. The story's about Jesus and what he's done. Look what else he's done. He rose according to the scriptures. Why is the resurrection such a huge thing? I mean, it obviously is. Why do you you think it's so big? Well, first of all, is Jesus the first person to claim to be a Messiah? No. You're right. Um, He's probably not the first person to claim to be God either. How are we going to know, another question, was he the only person to be crucified unjustly by the Romans? (laughs) Thousands of those. How are we going to know that that cross actually was in our place? It actually paid for our sins. How are we going to know that God is actually satisfied and doesn't need to pour out his justice on us any longer? How are we going to know that what Jesus said was true, that he is who he says he was? How are we going to know this is real? How are we going to know it's true? Well, you, you want God's stamp of appeal on something? <laughs> you want his exclamation point? Vindication. This is, this is right. This works. Guess what? He rose from the dead to show it worked. He is. He has done it. The gospel has occurred. Shows that it's true. And it shows that the story will have a happy ending. Oh, we need this. You've heard the word theodicy. It's basically like the, the, the issue of the, prom, the problem of evil, right? How can God be good and powerful and there be evil? And it's a huge question. It's an important question. It's a massive question. It's not just a problem for Christians. It's a problem for anyone anywhere. How do we, how do we understand this? And I'm not going to say that there's still no mystery in it for any of us. There's a lot. But here's one thing we have as Christians that nobody else has. Our God has walked right through the worst evil. This helps for a lot of reasons. One, it's compassion. He knows what it's like. He knows. He knows what it means to suffer and to hurt. But not only did he walk right through it, guess what he did? He defeated it. There can, after a betrayal and torture and crucifixion, there can be a resurrection. There can be a renewal, a change so surprising and so beautiful that it actually takes the evil and makes something good out of it, something wonderful out of it. He rose. And that's huge for us because really the rest of this chapter is all about, hey, Corinthians, hey, fountain of life, you're going to rise too. You're going to rise. There's a happy ending to the story. This is the true story. It's a gospel story. It's news about what Jesus has done. He's the Christ according to the scriptures. He's died for our sins and he's risen from the dead. He's alive. And then I think Paul wants to say that it's a true story. Tim, Tim Keller calls these verses footnotes. You remember being in school a long time ago? You had to write a paper. Footnotes. What do footnotes do? Besides give you headaches, you're trying to format these documents. 
Footnotes are evidence, right? I said something, and here's where I got it. Here's how we know. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 to 8. He rose from the dead. Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What do you think he's trying to do? Why is he saying this? This is true. This is true. It's real. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not just we hope so. This this is true. This actually happened. Uh, We can remember from our point of view something about 1 Corinthians. It's It's one of the earliest epistles written. Probably within 20, maybe 30 years of Jesus. It's really early. Not only that, you remember what Paul said, I want to remind you of something I preached. So this is not the first time he's told them about Jesus, right? He already told them along before. He's reminding them. Not only that, he says, I want to remind you of what I also received. So there's episodes here of, you know, I believe this gospel about Jesus. I told you. I'm telling you again. Some scholars think these words right here have hints of Aramaic in them, like this was an ancient Christian creed. You are looking at what Christians believed just a breath after Jesus. This is it. It's true. You know why it's important for us in our day? People say, oh, this is just a myth. This is just invented later. Later? We have evidence to see that Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead after dying for our sins like the day after he rose from the dead. It's true, it can't be a myth. It's not possible. Then also Paul said he was buried. I think that's funny. I missed it on the overhead today for some reason. I promise he was, why why does he mention he was buried? I mean, when you remember someone you love and they died, when you're like, and then he was buried. Did he even mention that? Well, okay. Why would we mention that? For Jesus, it's a pretty big deal. Remember, uh, the authorities that hated him said, oh, we heard him say he's going to rise from the dead. That means they're going to try to steal his body. And so actually, uh, right, a rich man, one of Jesus' followers, wanted to honor Jesus and give him his tomb. Seems like no big deal. At the time, it's huge. If he's just a criminal, he's thrown into a common grave. How could we ever prove he was risen from the dead or not? But no, we, we know where he's buried. It's cut into the rock. You can slide this big boulder in front of it. And then the Gospels tell us they sealed it shut and put Roman guards in front of it. And everybody knew, Romans and the crowd and the disciples and the Jewish leaders, they all knew where he was buried. It's right here. Oh, except on the third day, (laughs) it was empty. (laughs) He rose from the dead. He's alive. Everybody knew where he was buried. And he appeared. He appeared to Peter and then the 12. (sighs) He appeared to more than 500. You know, in today's world, it would be like, he's appeared to more than 500 people. You want to call one? That's what it would be like. Some of whom they've fallen asleep. That's that's Christian trash talk for death. Right? Because Jesus can wake you up from death like like we wake people up from a nap. They've fallen asleep. Don't worry. They'll rise. You, you, but you could call some. 
They saw him. 500. I got, I got 473 people left. Would you like to call one? How many would you call until you thought, I think this happened? I've called 98 people. Well, of course, I went to visit them. All the apostles go down for it, suffer for it. There was nothing. What was there selfish to gain for this? If you're Peter, let's uh, say Christianity's a lie, the resurrection's a lie. And then uh, tradition tells us he was crucified upside down. I wouldn't get a tooth pulled for something I knew was a lie. Peter's about to get crucified upside down. And they say, recant, man. Tell us this is all just a lie. And he says, pin me up. It's true. And each apostle goes down for it. Not one of them breaks. Would you do that for something you knew was a lie? They couldn't do that during Watergate. Nobody held. It's true. It's true. Then Paul mentions two other people. James and himself. Why does he point out James and himself? You ever thought of that? Why James? Why himself? Because these are the two most famous skeptics. James was Jesus' half-brother, grew up with Jesus. I think he was bitter because he always lost every argument. You know? He comes to Mary and says, Jesus did whatever. And Mary's like, your brother's the son of God. That means you're wrong. Every time, yeah. Oh. He didn't believe. He didn't believe his brother was the Christ. And then we don't know what it was like for him to see his brother crucified. I assume there's still affection there. There's still friendship. It's his brother. To see him die on a cross and just think, oh, this horrid, horrid tragedy that's hit my family. And my brother would not stop trumpeting his nonsense. And look what it's done to us. And then one day, Jesus appears to him. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you, I, I, would, I would like to have been there for this. What would, have, what would have to happen for you to worship your brother as God? It would have to be something just like this. It's the only way. He appeared. James becomes one of the leaders in the church. Tradition tells us he got thrown off the temple for it. On the way down, he said, he rose from the dead. I, I made that last one up. <laughs> I bet that's what he did. Then there's Paul. Then there's Paul. He persecuted the church. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus with such passion. Um, and then all of a sudden, he's, everything's changed for him. What, what on earth is going to change somebody like James and Paul to be absolutely different in how they live and what they care about and what they love? And they're telling you, we saw him. Paul's telling you here, this isn't just the story that we've been hearing about, hoping for. This isn't just, oh, could there really be resurrection from the dead? Could there really be a happy ending? Paul is telling you, this is not just the most beautiful story ever. It's the true story. It's true. It's real. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. Let's see what the story can do to us. Look at verses 8 to 11. Paul says, verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. 
because I persecuted the grace of God. How did he feel about himself? A few words to think about. Verse nine, for I am the what? I'm the least, and then least of the apostles. What's that next word? Unworthy. Do you ever feel like you're unworthy? I do almost constantly. Um, I'm not worthy. Um, I've just uh, I've messed it up too many times. My heart's too crooked. I've, I'm not worthy. I, I like to imagine how Paul must have felt because he became such, such an incredibly loving, sacrificial person. It really had to have scarred his dreams. I mean, he could probably remember faces of people whose lives he ruined in his zeal. Moms and dads and kids, jail, maybe death, huge financial loss. I mean, if you have regrets in your life, I do, things where you're like, I wish I hadn't done that. That was awful. Paul probably has more. And I think it hurt him to think about that when he was changed. I know it would me. I don't deserve this. Unworthy. But look at this word he mentions three times in just, what, two verses. Verse 10, but by the what? Grace of God I am what I am. And his what? Grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the what? Grace of God. Grace. 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 We're unworthy, and when we come to this true story, Jesus the Christ dying for our sins, rising from the dead, when we come and we, and we think, this, I want in, you know what he gives us? Grace. We say, I'm unworthy. He says, I love you. We say, I don't, I don't deserve this. He says, I died for you. We say, but I'm condemned. I keep messing it up. He says, I rose for you. You're right with God. Grace, you're loved, but I don't deserve it. Yeah, I know. That's what makes it grace. Undeserved love. And grace is what transforms us. Grace is what changes us. Paul talks over here about how his identity was transformed and his calling. He went from being evil, wicked, horrible. He says, but it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now I'm, I'm loved. I'm a son of God. I'm a part of his body. I'm forgiven. Do you know that? Have you come to the story, the true story of Jesus and what he's done and found that you're new? I've got a new identity. That stuff doesn't own me anymore. It doesn't define me anymore. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm God's child. That'll transform you. When you see what you have in your identity in Christ, you won't, you won't have to please all the audiences anymore because you've already pleased the only audience that matter. You, you won't have to be owned by anxiety anymore because you know you're loved by the one who controls the future. This changes you. Identity by grace in Christ. Not only that, it changes calling. He became an apostle. Wow. It's probably not going to be like that for you. I'll go ahead and say it's not going to be like that for you. It may change your job, sure. It, may make, it, it will make massive changes in your life. But also sometimes it'll just make massive changes to your normal life. Your regular job now is different because you're a child of God by grace. Man, you, you paint that building, you stack those shelves, or you program that computer, or, or you design that project, and you do it for God's glory. 
and the joy of who he is to you. And you do it with love for others. Man, you want to serve the people in your life because God's changing. You, you want to do this so people can see the beauty of Christ in you. Your calling is changed by grace. Oh, this gospel is so different, isn't it? All these other religions and stories that said, do stuff, do stuff, do stuff, and maybe one day you'll be enough. And Jesus says, you don't have a chance of being enough on your own. Here's the gospel. I did the stuff. I lived it perfectly. I died on the cross. I rose from the dead. Here, take it. It's free. Grace. And now because you're loved, oh, now you can go do stuff from the heart. Because the grace transforms us, changes our identity, changes our calling. The gospel is the true story of Jesus, and the story can change you by his grace. How do we respond to it? Look it up at verses 1 to 2, just a few words to walk through. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Paul went to Corinth, told these people about the gospel. They received it. What does it mean to receive it? It means to realize all these other stories you've been buying and living in aren't it. Counterfeits. It means you've got to humble, humble that part that wanted to make that story about you. You gotta, you gotta see that part where you've rejected the one whom the story's all about. You gotta, you gotta humble yourself and you gotta say, Jesus, I don't deserve this, but I'd like to be yours. I wanna receive what you've done. Have you received the gospel? Bow that knee of your heart, trusted Christ. He becomes your story, your identity, your calling, your view. Paul says, this gospel which you received, and then he says, in which you stand. In which you stand. Stand is like you gotta, you got to hold a hill against the conflict. And your feet are firmly planted and you're saying, I'm not moving. This is my foundation. This is who I am. That's how I see the There's some stubbornness to stand. It means, it means I'm not going anywhere else anymore. Jesus is it. His life, his death, his resurrection. This is what I'm about. When you're tempted, you hold that ground. You say, I'm in Christ. Jesus, help me follow you. When you're condemned, you hold that ground, you say, no, Jesus died, he rose from me. When you're drawn away, you remember, this is the true story. It's an anchor for your life. Connects you to God your Father, Jesus Christ. He says you receive it, you stand in it. It says, by which you are being saved. That's a present participle for language people in here. What does that mean? I don't know, Matt. It means it's always happening right now. We don't want a truncated view of salvation where it's like, I got saved when I prayed the prayer in 84, and that's it. In a way, that may be true. You trusted Christ in 84, you were justified, yeah, you were saved. But that's, not, that's just the start of the story. That's not the end. One day we'll be perfectly ultimately saved when we're with the Lord and his new heavens and new earth. But right now, this gospel is what's saving you today. There's little conversions every moment, aren't there? God, I need you again. God, forgive me again. Help me follow you again. What do you want from me again? Change me again. Comfort me again. I... By which you are being saved. So if, if Paul says, receive the gospel, stand, stand in the gospel, I want to say steep in the gospel. I got to be in England for a couple days for a class, and they drink this beverage called tea. Have you heard of it? 
I still think it doesn't have anything on coffee, but that's just me. But what do you do with that tea bag? Put that in the hot water. What happens to the water? Changes it. Okay? Here's what you have to know as a Christian. You've got to steep in the gospel. You can't leave the gospel in the past. You can't graduate to some new, greater thing. There is no new and greater thing. The grace of God for you in the gospel is like the hub of the wheel for every aspect of the Christian life. Why do you forgive? Because Jesus forgave you in the gospel. Why do you love your enemy? Because you were the enemy and he loved you in the gospel. You, you got to steep in this. You got to get into it every day. Did you, did you hear what Paul said? This is of first importance. You can't leave this behind. It's changing you. It's saving you now. Steep in it. Let this story dominate all the others. You know what this says? It says, don't just come to church. Don't you have the sense throughout the week there's all these other stories hitting you? Stories about, oh, who you are is your ethnicity, who you are is your career, who you are even is your family life, who you are is your whatever it is, who you are is what your friends say or, or this or that. All these little stories, hey, walk in my, listen, to, to steep in the gospel has the gospel over all those stories. It's everything. It's the story that dominates you all the time. Which is why Paul says, hold fast to the word I preached. Hold fast. Now, that's, that's a more of an image, isn't it? It's more of an image. Uh, imagine a waterfall. You went for a nice swim. You stayed in too long. The current's strong. It's going over the side. That's the, the suck of all these other stories that want to draw you in, that want to distract you from Christ, and that rope is thrown. And you know you're about to go over, and the rope is thrown. How, how would you grab the rope? I can, I can lend a couple fingers. Or would you, just, would you just hang on like this, this, this is all that mattered. This is it. I've, I've got to do anything but hang on. Even if my skin gets cut, I've got to hang on to this rope. Paul is saying to Christians, you've got to hang on to the gospel like this. Hold fast to who Jesus is, to what he's done. You notice what Paul said. This is, this is most important. There's a lot of important things in Christianity and the Christian life in your life. Don't want to demean any of them. But one thing's most important. One thing needs to be emphasized. One thing you need to be reminded of. You got to receive it. You got to stand in it. You got to steep in it. You got to hold fast to it. What is it? It's the true story of the gospel of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Hold fast. Because it will hold fast for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. We love it so much. Your grace, unbelievable. Helps to see how true it is, to trust it. And Lord, let it just transform us. Your grace for us in Christ, changing who we are, changing how we live. Let us never let it go. Let us always treasure it. Let us always hold it up as the best, most important, Lord Jesus, who you are, what you've done. Pray this in your name. Amen.